Welcome to Great Minds with Michael Medved. I'm Dr. Stephen Meyer. I'm the director of the Center for Science and Culture, and we thought Turnabout would be fair play. Michael is obviously the one who hosts most of these uh, podcasts, but uh, many of us who have been interviewed by Michael know that he himself has quite a great mind, and we wanted to, to pick his brain a little bit in this series of interviews about his new book, The American Miracle. We've been talking, Michael, about these uh, series of happy coincidences that have uh, not befallen but uh, graced our history. And uh, we also mentioned this, this passage from uh, Washington's first inaugural. And like you, the founders of this country uh, saw the hand of providence in the events of, uh, of the forming of the country. And I want to just read a quote, the, the full quote from Washington. It's very striking. No people, he says, can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand, which he capitalizes, which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. And, and by the way, one of those tokens, and it's something that is just stunning because I had never seen the actual sermon, but I found it, and it's not published, but you, thank God for the internet. George Washington, 23 years old, he fights in the Battle of Monongahela in the French and Indian War. It's 1755. There were 70 British officers who rode into the battle. Only one of them was neither killed nor wounded. And he had two horses shot out from under him. This was when Washington was a British officer. Correct. Before he was the a, Revolutionary correct. War. He's right. 23 years old. Right. So here's the stunning thing. Okay, he survives the battle. He alone, and again, uh, there were Indians at the time, there was later evidence, Indians at the time who, who were the main enemies mm-hmm. that we were fighting at that time was the French and Indian War. Right. And when I say we, there was Virginia militia together with the British troops. Washington was a colonel, colonel yeah. in that Virginia militia. And he escapes the battle miraculously with the two horses shot out from under him and bullet holes in his, uh, his, his cloak and the hat shot off his head. And, but he survives and he's unscathed. When he returned home, Samuel Davies, who later became president of Princeton University, who was a Presbyterian minister, uh, delivers a sermon. And he speaks of that heroic youth, Colonel Washington, who surely has been raised by God to serve some signal purpose mm-hmm. to his people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, come on. When, when you're picked out at age 23, yes, yeah, right. throughout the Revolutionary yeah. War, he was extraordinarily reckless in right. his courage. Right. And he was a big guy. He was 6'3". Yeah. At a time Easy when target. Yeah. huge target, yeah. big, and he's riding on a big white horse. And, and there's this incredible story about Sergeant Patrick Ferguson, who was a British sharpshooter who had amazed King George with his displays of accuracy, who got a bead on Washington just before the Battle of Brandywine. And he was with a nest of snipers. There were six of them. Mm-hmm. They had six guns trained on General Washington. The revolution could have ended right there because without him mm-hmm. and... Um, there, there was, he was asked about it later. Why didn't you shoot him? He said, there was something unpleasing to me about that prospect. And, and by the way, he later died in, in battle, uh, Sergeant Ferguson, who, by the way, to whom we owe 
the existence of the United States, States of America. Yeah. On the, that thin thread of his, his, his yeah, aversion. I, I, I talk in, in the book about, uh, there was an earlier episode with, uh, with George Washington before the Battle of Monongahela, where he had been sent out to warn the French and to get them. And, and then there are two witnesses, Washington and his colleague. They had been guided by another Indian who was trying to steal their stuff who um, fired mm-hmm. at Colonel Washington to, to kill him from a distance of about 15 feet. And you can imagine, if this was a movie, imagine this bullet traveling, because on this depends everything. Yeah. Because he was the one indispensable yeah. man. Yeah. I, the chapter about Washington is called Indispensable, Indestructible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, he dies just coincidentally uh, just a few days before New Year's of the new century. century. He had dominated. He was the most famous person in the world at the end of the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And then he dies right before New Year's Day, 1800. As but, if his work had been done. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And there's a very similar kind of uh, aura around Lincoln, and we'll uh, want to get to that. But I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the the founding itself. There was an interesting passage where you said whether or not there was providence in all the events surrounding the the Constitution, there was certainly a divine perspective being reflected. And I wanted uh, the, you, you emphasize a lot the 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 hand of providence because this is the way the founders themselves saw the country, uh, saw the role of God in the country. But there was there was a a sense in which the the philosophy and the the worldview of the founding generation reflected deeper Judeo-Christian understandings of of human nature. Some of the founders were unconventional religiously, Very. some were not. But there were when I taught political philosophy, I used to talk about the twin pillars of constitutional thought, and it comes out in a number of ways in your account of this that they were convinced of the dignity of human beings, but also uh, that humans were capable of selfishness and depravity in the Calvinistic terms. So there was this great attempt in the Madisonian Constitution to get these checks and balances built into the when built into the new federal federal government. But that wasn't popular with everyone, even though most people held the basic worldview. It got really tense at the at the convention. Um, they 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 all agreed that humans. You needed checks and balances, but the specifics of the of the deal were difficult to do. Uh, absolutely right. And w- there are two things here that I think are incontrovertible, and I can s- state them very briefly. The Constitution of the United States is the single greatest creation by committee in the history of the universe. Mm-hmm. Committees usually don't come up with something right, good. Right, right. This was a true committee work. And it's lasted. There, there is no other constitution. Of course, there's no written British constitution. It, mm-hmm. it evolves. I mean, it's it's based on common law. There's no constitution. Right, right. The constitution of the United States is unique in that regard, and it has lasted, and it has blessed us, and continues to do so. the The other aspect uh, about the constitution, which is so extraordinary, is because the constitution. This is the only fully successful revolution in the history of humanity. Uh, the Russian Revolution, never mind. That's so good. The Chinese Revolution, same story. Um, the French the Revolution. The French Revolution, yeah. yeah. It collapses and produces Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't last. The English Revolution, which gets rid of the monarchy, they 
behead the king and, and stole Cromwell as Lord Protector. That lasts for a few years, and then they're back with the Restoration. The English Revolution, this revolution works. And, and it is because of the people gathered in that miserable, hot, stinky, sticky summer in Philadelphia who were, through their faith, that they were doing something godly. Mm -hmm able to, uh, to put and this that's, together. That's what I wanted to get back to, is that there was the providential hand in negotiating all the difficulties and getting the people to all work, but there was a common commitment to some basic ennobling principles that seemed right. to warrant the, the blessings of providence, if you will. Correct, but it's also the sense that we're doing something important. Mm -hmm. and, and this, by the way, is so desperately needed in American politics today, the idea that we are doing the Lord's work and they did have a sense of that. Even even the, the founders who weren't sure they believed. And if we in commit ourselves to that, he will in turn help us. And then little by little, the evidence of that seems to arise right. in all these happy coincidences. It's the idea of partnership, or mm. as Lincoln said, yeah. This this struck me because, by the way, I, I I always when I read about Lincoln, when I write about Lincoln, I always feel better. Yeah. I mean, Lincoln is is such a, a remarkable human life. I wanted to segue to that. So you have a chapter where you actually talk, you have three chapters on Lincoln and the Civil right. War, but the first of those is just simply titled The Miracle of Lincoln. What was so improbable about his rise to, to uh, influence? A horrible childhood, um, absolute dire poverty, uh, not owning pairs of shoes. He had a total of six months total formal education, and he's the greatest prose writer in the history of the English language. I mean, he truly is reading, reading Lincoln aloud. And, and how did this happen? And, and Lincoln himself had a sense of his instrumentality. Mm -hmm. he, he called himself repeatedly from early, from early, from his 20s, an instrument he of had the a sense higher of, power. A sense of, of, of divine Correct. purpose. And the sense of partnership. Mm -hmm. Now, again, not conventionally religious. He may, used to make fun. His father was quite a serious yeah. Baptist and used to apparently uh, abuse young Abraham uh, if he didn't spend time in church. But he was famous as a boy. There are two, two kids who grew up with him in Indiana yeah. who say that uh, he used to, uh, after church on Sunday, he would come out and do imitations of the, of the <laughs> pastors and, and, and make fun of them. He didn't like them. But he had a very much uh, a deepening of, of faith Absolutely. during his period in the White House. And, and, was... and, and it, particularly in the presidency and particularly, well, even before the presidency, mm -hmm. after the death of the first of his sons. I mm -hmm. mean, all of this is so spooky. There's one thing that, again, nobody knows about, I don't think, but it's, it's so stunning, is that um, he only had one son who lived to adulthood, um, who his son Robert, who uh, became uh, Secretary of War later on right, after right. Lincoln was killed. Robert almost died and he died. He was in the Union Army and he was coming home and he was in, uh, they used to have the train stations for New York because before mm -hmm. they built the bridges were not yeah. Manhattan Island, they're in New Jersey. So he was in a train station in New Jersey and he had been pushed over onto the platform and there's an approaching train and he, he apparently himself thought he was going to die and all of a sudden their, their arms him out. That pull him out. And it was? It was the brother of John Wilkes Booth. That's unbelievable. Which is, <laughs> that's and, just and too weird. there are letters, <laughs> there are letters, there is a, a, a letter that Robert Lincoln wrote yeah. acknowledging, and 
it's so stunning that this, uh, again, Lincoln himself was obsessed with this. And one of the things that, that again, I think people would be struck with at the book, Lincoln wrote about his dreams. Mm -hmm. He spoke about his dreams at cabinet meetings. Mm -hmm. And the Friday he was killed, they had a cabinet meeting. It was, he was shot that Friday, yeah. which was Good Friday. Yeah. And by the way, this was lost on no one. Yeah. He was killed on Good Friday. And by Easter Sunday, he, uh, he had become an American martyr. sacrifice yeah. and martyr. Yeah. And by the way, on it, Palm it, Sunday, yeah. before the Good Friday, that's when Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. I, the entire thing is, it was just so redolent with you couldn't, Christian You symbolism. couldn't script it. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and, and I read the passage this morning where you quoted him talking at the cabinet meeting about his dreams and how people needed to take dreams seriously because in the Bible, right. they were taken seriously. Right, and right. so he's quoting scripture to his cabinet members. And, right. Um, when, and, and that last dream where he, he spoke to the cabinet, he said, I, I dreamt last night that I was on a mysterious boat that was traveling at great distance across dark water. And there's silence. By the way, General Grant was there. It was the first yeah. time he'd ever attended a yeah. cabinet meeting. He just won the war. Um, and, and then his last words that we know that he spoke, and by the way, this has been controversial, yeah. but, it's, uh, but he squeezed his wife's hand. They're in the box. There's a, mm -hmm. a pause in the play. They're changing scenes. Mm -hmm. And he said, when all of this is done, Molly, which is what he called mm -hmm. her, uh, we will go to Jerusalem so I can walk in the footsteps of the Savior. Okay, he was not a Holy Joe. He had written anti-religious tracts when he was younger, uh, but he came to have this abiding faith and, and again, understood his instrumentality. Now, the other cabinet meeting, Oh, I I wanted, get to. Go ahead. I want to talk to you about the second inaugural too, because your passages on that were fascinating. No, the entire yeah. thing is just it's yeah. just beyond and and these are not folk tales. It's not like no. Parson Weems about Washington. This is stuff that's confirmed the, by eyewitnesses. Yeah, well, and the the second inaugural is on the uh, the, the Lincoln on the Memorial. Record. Yes, yeah. but okay, he speaks to a cabinet meeting in July of 1862, and he reads his Emancipation Proclamation. He's getting ready to free right. the slaves. Right. There's long silence. Seward, Secretary mm -hmm. of State, speaks up, says, Mr. President, you cannot issue this paper. It will be viewed as a desperate cry of a losing cause mm -hmm. because they had lost battle after battle. Yeah. And so Lincoln says, I shall put it in my drawer and wait for a sign. That sign comes on the morning of September 17th, 1862. Okay, here's what happens. Lee is invading the North. It looks like another Confederate victory. victory. Uh, there is no general for the Army of the Potomac. They mm -hmm. bring back McClellan. Yeah, He's fight. notoriously yeah. slow. Yeah. He's trying to intercept Lee. The 44th Indiana Volunteers march all night long to try to catch up with General Lee. And in the morning, they're allowed to rest in a field in Frederick, Maryland. And it's a grassy field. And there is a uh, Corporal, uh, Corporal Barton Mitchell with his friend John McKnight Bloss. Two volunteers from Indiana. And they lie down on the grass, and Corporal Mitchell leans back and he puts his head back, and then he, he with his right arm, he hits something in the high grass. And it's a package. And he looks at the package. It's three cigars. Now, this for guys who've been marching all night, this is pretty cool. Because <laughs> they're they're just humble enlisted men. So he, he unwraps it and he takes out the cigars and he starts asking for a light. And then his buddy, the sergeant, 
uh, John McKnight's boss says, wait a minute, what are those papers? They pick up the papers the guards are wrapped in, and they read them. It says General Orders, number 181, and it's signed by uh, 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 Chittenden, who is an adjutant to General Lee. And then they take these orders, up the line, up the line, up the line. They finally get the orders after going through different offices to General McClellan because this tells exactly what, what Lee's battle plan do. is, what they're going to do, where he's going. It gives them the chance to stop this invasion of the North and to stop the South from winning the war. And McClellan immediately says, how do I know that this is actual? I think it's just a trick by Bobby Lee. There's a general there who says, what's the name on it? And they look at the name of the adjutant. The general's name is Pittman. He says, I know the man. I served with him in Michigan. And he recognized the handwriting. He said, that's his signature. Now, yeah, this, is, this is so the bizarre. Specificity. And yeah. at that yeah. moment, yeah. and everyone heard it, um, McClellan says, with this paper, yeah. I can beat Bobby Lee. Yeah. Okay, and he does. And, and they win the Battle of Antietam in the sense of uh, blunting the invasion, and Lee has to retreat. Lincoln then comes in and says, I have seen the sign I, I was okay. waiting for. And, uh, and they agree. And, and, and Is that the occasion of his saying then that the, the, the Almighty has declared that correct. I must issue this? Now. Yes, yeah. the, the, he yeah. says that, uh, uh, that God has decided the issue He's for God the slaves. The issue. For the slaves. Yeah. And so they issue the Emancipation Proclamation based upon that. And again, the cabinet meeting, there are two different people, yeah. uh, both uh, the Secretary of Treasury, Salmon Portland Chase, yeah. and the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, yeah. who are recording the cabinet meetings so we know what Lincoln said, yeah. which is stunning. Yeah. We've got just a couple more minutes. I'd like you to talk in closing about the second inaugural address, because in a way, Lincoln's perspective on the divine role in history and the perspective you're advancing in the book are, are beautifully aligned. The second inaugural was a very unusual political speech. It was a remarkable political speech. It's considered the greatest speech in American history. I agree. And people, what people should do is, it's a short speech, yeah. too. It's only a few minutes, like the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln had that great gift of concision. And read it aloud. And when people go home tonight, or when you can read the Lincoln Second Inaugural Address aloud because it's poetry and it's beautiful mm-hmm. and it's perfect. But what he does is he, he basically is looking for a reason for the suffering they've just undergone. They'd already run the war, basically. But why? And why have we suffered? And, and he says if, uh, uh, basically, that, that the war was a divine punishment mm-hmm. for the, the sin of slavery, for the crime of slavery. And, um, and, and basically, Frederick Douglass, who became a friend of Lincoln's, he was asked uh, right after the inaugural address, Lincoln called him over, he said, uh, Douglass, there's no man whose opinion I, I need more than yours. And uh, Douglass said, that, that was a, a, a mighty fine sermon, mm-hmm. Mr. President. Mm-hmm. And it Lincoln, was a piece of what, Theologians and philosophers call theodicy. Exactly. Attempting explaining to God explain to the suffering of man in a way that vindicated the justice of God. Right. Exactly right. Beautiful. Exactly right. In, in any event, the entire story, including the story of the assassination, I one of the things that I do grapple with at the very end of the book is why would God allow this good man to be killed at the moment of his greatest triumph? And what's the answer in brief? And the answer is God 
protected him to that point. There were a dozen prior assassination attempts. And it's miraculous that Lincoln lived to that point to win the war, to see that joy, and to hold his wife's hand. And, and to, to fulfill to... his purpose. Correct. Beautiful. This has been an extraordinary series of interviews with Michael about his new book, The American Miracle. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you will download some of our other podcasts as well at mindswithmedved.com. And uh, we hope to see you in, in or, or we hope you hear our, our future podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>